Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host, Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. Today, Chloe and I are joined by exercise physiologist and pain researcher, Brendan Mowat. We talk about the notion of anti-fragility and how we can apply that to improve our client outcomes, how what we say and even things that we don't say can influence our clients' well-being. And we go down a whole fascinating rabbit hole about what is pain. Coming right up. Hey, Chloe. Hey, Raph. How are you going? Fucking awesome. <laughs> Fucking awesome. You? We're going we're gonna <laughs> to get this show on the road with a bang. I am uh, I am not so bad. I'm excited that we've got Brendan here. Hey, Brendan. Hey, hey guys. I'm excited too. It's awesome to see you. Yeah, it's been a little bit of a, a bit of time between between chats. So yeah, I'm excited to. It has. Have a bit of a chat. I, I, I almost thought we weren't uh, friends anymore, Brendan. It had been like it, you know, it's like, where's Brendan? And then. Oh, that's cute. I love that you thought we were friends at one point in time. That's. <laughs> no, that's no, absolutely. We don't we don't talk enough, but uh, I always love catching up with you guys. So. Um, Brendan. Definitely setting you, the tone. Can you tell uh, tell the the folks at home a little brief who you are and your history and what you what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am currently living in Adelaide. Um, so I moved over here a few years ago. Um, so my background was I went and did exercise science, and then went and did a master's of exercise physiology, and you know really did it because I wanted to be helping people. Um, loved exercise and thought that was going to be a really cool modality to work with. Uh, and from there, um, worked as an exercise physiologist for quite some time, still do, um, work clinically. And um, I've always really loved that side of things. But there was a part um, where I also felt really quite challenged in my journey of you know conflicting ideas and research that was suggesting that maybe the way that I practice and you was using exercise and explaining exercise to people may have not been the the best way of going about it. And I I guess science was this thing that that really um, helped me and challenged me in so many different ways that that I've now gone back and I um, did another master's of research um, in exercise and perception. And now I'm currently doing my PhD over over here in um, Adelaide uh, at UniSA. So um, I guess in, in a nutshell, that's sort of my background. Um, I've got a couple of clinical practices, multidisciplinary practices and um, exercise facilities, I guess, in, in Melbourne. Uh, and we also run the Knowledge Exchange, which is like a continuing education for health and movement professionals as well on, on different pain and musculoskeletal related topics that, that, that we've found to be really kind of helpful uh, in terms of the content was stuff that's challenged us in the past and really changed how we work with people now. Mm. 
And and is Tasha Stanton supervising your PhD? Yeah, so um, Tasha Stanton and Lorimer Mosley. Um, and, what a and now, what a double name drop there! Oh, Woo! I know, I know. How lucky am I <laughs> to, to be working with the, those guys um, who who are who are unreal? And and I've got uh, another supervisor that's just come on board named Felicity Braithwaite, and she's also someone worth looking up if you haven't heard of her before. But she's um, you've done some really cool stuff with placebo and placebo dry needling and all that kind of cool stuff too. So I love a good placebo dry needling. Yeah, me it's, the only kind, it's the only kind, really. I, <laughs> the one time I had dry needling, it was bloody awful. I remember it really, really hurt, and I kind of remember thinking. And the practitioner was like, "Oh no, the more it hurts, the better the you know, the better it's working." I'm like, oh, "This doesn't feel quite right to me." But anyway, I didn't get any placebo effect from it; just pain. You know, maybe I don't. I don't know how much interest it is to people, but it's interesting to me. So I'm going to share it that. Brendan and I met, would have been 2014 or 2015, something like that, um, when I did my Masters of Clinical Exercise Physiology, uh, I did my placement with Brendan and his business partner, Luke, um, and that was 500 hours of clinical placement that I had to do, and uh, you know these guys started their sessions at 6am, first session of the day, so I used to get up some ungodly hour, leave home at five on my bike, ride to the pitch black and, and arrive and we'd spend all day together seeing clients. And and for I think for all of us that year and maybe the the year the following year were the year that that was the time where we really kind of shifted and like you said, Brennan, sort of started questioning the the narrative around what we'd been um doing with our clients and uh kind of woke up to modern evidence based you know, guideline-based care. And so, you know, I feel like you and, and Luke, um, Postlethwaite of the Biomechanics, and I kind of all, I don't know, came out at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. What, what, a, what, a, what a way to put it. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I, I remember you kind of coming in and, and – it's probably like the, the one placement student that, that we've had where we learnt probably just as much, if not more, from from you um, throughout that. And, um, you know, obviously we've stayed in touch since and the amount that you've kind of challenged us with and, you know, the discussions, you know, it's been, you know, really meaningful. And I think I can speak for Luke with this as well in, in terms of our own, um, you know, figuring out our philosophy of, how we practice and how we run business and how we combine healthcare and um, all of those sorts of things is, yeah, you've been a huge big part of that. So, um, and I can probably speak for a lot of your community as well that uh, you are very influential in in that, but um, from my firsthand experience that, you know, it's been fun to have you, you know, along for the ride and all the good times. Big fella. So, um, Chloe, you know. Oh, sorry, us, I was waiting for someone gonna... to to yeah. pump my wings a little bit. Yeah. There was like a. <laughs> what about my uh, influence think, on think... you, Brendan? Sorry, I, I think I was just saying just before we started about how you're the little sister that I never asked for, <laughs> uh, but not really. I say that with so much affection. You, you, uh, I love listening to your podcast and what you guys do. So, no, you're doing awesome things. Do you still listen to the podcast, Chloe? 
Do I still listen to our podcast? Yeah. Um, of course, yes. I don't know what's the right answer. <laughs> I feel like I got totally caught off guard. I, sometimes. Sometimes. I, when we first started recording, I was listening to it a lot. Um, and then I just – there's a lot – I kind of, I've kind of, sometimes I've heard enough of my voice, Raph, because I also, I, I, I watch my lectures back. I watch my masterclasses back for quality control. It's like I'm watching all of that. And then if I'm, you know, it's a lot. But I'm really, I really love listening to the episodes where I'm not part of the episode and I definitely listen to those. I don't think I saw myself very well there. I don't know. Do you listen to them? Yeah, I'm the same. I, I'd listen to them when I've, when we first started because we're kind of working out our audio quality and our, mm. you know, I was trying to figure out if I said um too much or anything like that. But after a while, I just kind of got to the point where I couldn't face it. I was like, no, I can't, I can't listen to another I'd, one. <laughs> I'd be interested. I, well, that's the thing too. And when I do listen back to myself, like anyone who listens to themselves, I'm sure you pick up on repeat words, you pick up on little nuances of your personality and whatnot and sometimes it becomes a little little annoying um if you listen to it all, I don't know but I guess uh I wonder I wonder what other podcasters do I wonder if they listen Brendan you've got a podcast yeah um Dan Arbilla um actually does most of the interviews on that so I only occasionally jump on and and do one so uh, I really struggle to listen back to to me talking um because the same thing, you hear those ticks and, and yeah. whatever. And um, and I think that's really good to, to listen to that, but it's fr- kind of frustrating and uncomfortable as well, all, yeah. all at the same time. I so. think that's really normal human behavior. And I know there's a couple of, I always think back, there's quite a few um, famous actors who have never, ever, ever watched their movies. Yeah. They, I was, they wa- absolutely I was watching refuse. With, with Maggie Smith, um, who was on Downton Abbey. She's a you know, mega famous actor and she's been on a bunch of stuff and they were saying oh what's your favorite Downton Abbey episode she's like I've never seen any of them I don't don't ever watch myself <laughs> it's interesting isn't it yeah. it's really interesting yeah oh. okay well what are we going to talk about today well why don't you why don't you tell us what we're going to talk about <laughs> well I'd really I mean I want to pick Brendan's brain on um all the exciting cool shit he's doing basically in in Adelaide with the phenomenal group he's working with, uh, I'd love to talk to Brendan about uh, fragility versus anti-fragility and uh, some practical tips that our, our listeners can use when working with their clients to, to help facilitate basically fearless movement and not do the opposite and potentially nocebo their clients. So I'd love to talk about that. Be interested to hear a bit. You, you've been quite involved with um, pain revolution as well, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Um, so um, at sort of as a volunteer running workshops um, as well. And I, I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how much your listeners know about it, but pain revolution is a, a community outreach um uh, initiative, I suppose, that, that um, Professor Laura Mosley, so the head of our research group, um, initiated uh, about five or six years ago. And the idea is to go out to rural Australian communities that are most strongly hit by pain. So the highest opioid uses is one metric that's kind of used to sort of determine that. Um, but we also know that uh, the prevalence of chronic pain or persistent pain 
in in rural communities is is much higher than um, in actual cities. So it's about going out there and bringing contemporary understandings of pain to them and so that they've got good resources but also um, a part of what we were doing was running seminars and workshops for local general practitioners um, and allied health providers so that they were on board and providing consistent information and um, assistance and support to these people who are, who are suffering from pain so that, that they're not getting mistreated or they're at least uh, getting access to to best current practices uh, when, when treating pain. Uh, and so, yeah, my, my role in, in that so far has been, yeah, running workshops for, for practitioners and- Have you got on the uh, bike or only Luke? Only, only Luke's <laughs> jumped on the bike. Um, Lorem has been trying to persuade me for a while and as much as I love cycling. Um, so to give context to our listeners, the pain, pain revolution also includes um, a, a group of uh, cyclists who are also uh, pain educators. Is that the right thing to say? Yeah, a mixture of practitioners um, and pain educators um, that are fundraising essentially. Yeah, so they 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 don the lycra to to raise money to help um, rural practitioners basically upskill in these areas and you know provide the support. To, so to did the, you get to so did you get to go in a car alongside them and just kind of hurl some abuse at Luke as you're going past kind of thing like. Can't you go faster uh, up that hill, mate? Sort of, is that how it worked? Or not? Not for me. I was kind of doing a lot of the community-based stuff, so we'd go ahead of the riders right, and okay. let let them suffer it out. So we did the real work, to be fair, uh, <laughs> while they just enjoyed their long rides each day and rolled in, had dinner, and uh, was all catered for. Um, no, but no, they do a fantastic job. And so, yeah, it is a big fundraising initiative. And really, if you haven't heard about it before, have a look at it because it is the leading cause of disability um, in the world. And, and it's a big issue and they're doing really cool stuff, at least in Australia so far, but also trying to branch out um, into a few other. So, we can link to that in the show notes. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes. So, so you mentioned there a contemporary understanding of pain. So can you sum up, you know, what do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's um, coming to recognise that that when we experience pain, that it is not just due to you know a, a tissue or a structure in our body being compromised. I mean that at times can be absolutely a part of that experience, but it's recognising that pain is influenced by a multitude of factors. Uh, and when you know our mood and how we're feeling, our previous experiences with painful experiences, perhaps, um, or our previous experiences with healthcare practitioners, or Pilates instructors, or personal trainers, or whatever it might be, our family members all have an influence to how we're going to perceive the sensory information that's coming from our body, but also the experience within our. Um, environment that that we find ourselves in when we're experiencing pain and so when we kind of uh, look at pain through this more contemporary lens that hey there's lots of factors here that's going to influence someone's pain and how they're going to behave and how their potential recovery is going to occur treatment and the way we talk about pain needs to reflect that if we're going to do a really good job of that whereas 
our non-contemporary, so our older way of understanding pain was that if we hurt our, our body part or um, you know, we experience pain in our, in our leg, for example, then we go, all right, it's because I've got a tear in my hamstring. And then until that tear in my hamstring is repaired or fixed by someone or whatever, that pain's going to persist. And that way, treatment obviously to reflect that needed to be really focused on that one tissue. It kind of ignored all of the other complexity that was going on. And if that person's pain continued to persist beyond normal healing times of that tissue, then we were kind of lost to, you know, what do we do with this individual? It's like, oh, maybe they haven't healed correctly or maybe they need surgery now. And so we just step up the, the type of treatment to fix that tissue. And, and I, I think that the, the broad data now suggests that when, when we do that, people start falling through those cracks at, a, at an alarming rate and they're not getting the care um, and, and treatment or help and assistance that they need to be able to actually recover from, from what is quite a complex experience. So this is the, the shift from a, a biomechanical or a biomedical model of thinking about pain to what's called the biopsychosocial model and the yeah the bio yes. the bio the biomedical model or the <clears throat> in our in our neck of the woods because we're not really medical the, the biomechanical model of pain basically says pain is an indicator of some kind of damage in the body somewhere there's wear and tear there's an injury there's something grinding or crushing or pressing or squeezing or whatever where it shouldn't be and so if, if you're hurt that's because there's a problem in the spot that you're perceiving the pain in. Whereas the biopsychosocial model says that, we, you know, we have inputs from our nervous system that might say there's pressure or there's vibration or there's temperature or there's chemical changes going on in a body part. There might be inflammation or, or whatever it might be. And then we process that within the context of a bunch of other inputs. So it's like, okay, what's, have we ever experienced this sensation before? Are we, you know, what's what the health of the organism? Are we run down, stressed, you know, tired, frightened, you know, etc.? Um, and then the brain, you know, outside of our conscious awareness, make comes to a decision about whether the that that input is you know represents danger, represents a threat, and if so, you know, motivates us to do something about it by causing us to experience pain. Absolutely. So it's just so many more factors to it than just that, that one thing in, you know, our biomechanics. Um, and it's not to say that biomechanics don't play a role, but how we kind of talk about that is probably really important to, to consider within this biopsychosocial model. Because if we tell people they have bad biomechanics or if you keep moving like that, you're going to have an injury, that's probably going to be one of those factors that influences how we perceive our body when you know we are having a painful experience or it might increase the likelihood even that we experience pain or threat to us as an organism as a person um, you know when we are in in a position that we've been told is bad for us perhaps so uh, this i mean you know this sounds like some wacky out there hippie shit brendan like it sounds like <laughs> too many acid tabs at fucking Rome Adelaide last year and <laughs> You know, like, where is are you coming up with this? Is that what you've been this? up to, Brendan, in Adelaide? Is this uh, why I you did go to Adelaide, 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 but there was no acid tabs. <laughs> there was um, no acid tabs. And not just because we had to wear masks. It was just uh, one, of, one of those things that 
It just didn't happen. So, um, I mean, it's not like the World Health Organization endorses this view or anything, is it? Like, is this just kind of some left field stuff that you and Warren have and cooked up somewhere? Or? That's it. it. You know what? And I think that's what I found really difficult about, you know, these ideas early on, you know, when we were so drawn into that biomechanical or biomedical model for the way we treated and, and talked about things was it seems so airy-fairy. It's like, oh, how could someone's environment, like, influence their pain or their experience and how they behave? Mm. Or how, could, how could how they think or a thought? Like, that's nonsense. Like, what wishy-washy concepts? And, um, yeah, and, and that's the thing is there is so much compelling data now. And, yeah, the, ab- absolutely, the guideline care, uh, you know, and, and when we talk about guidelines, obviously um, I've heard you speak about this quite a lot, Raf. You know, this is not just someone's opinion. This is vast amounts of, of data and research being uh, evaluated to go, all right, what do we understand, um, you know, from all of this information? And we've got great data to suggest, yeah, absolutely, social factors and our environment can absolutely have uh, very, very meaningful impacts on someone's trajectory, the way they think and their thoughts and ideas, what they're told, um, what they're exposed to are going to have uh, really meaningful effects. And our biology has really meaningful effects, but the, 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 I guess the broader sense of it as well is you cannot separate these three things. As soon as you separate the social from the psycho or the bio, you cease to exist as a human being. So if we take away your environment, you're in space, you know, you've got nothing around you, you know, that there's no situation where that exists, but when you are in, you know, uh, let's say uh, you have a surprise party thrown for you, walking into that surprise party, the biology that occurs is phenomenally complex. Like there is a cascade of things going on. There's obviously thoughts as well, but those thoughts, they're just biological, physiological processes that are occurring. So, you know, when you think something, yeah, your biology is absolutely affected by that. When you're in a positive environment, your biology is absolutely affected by that. If you're in a negative environment, once again, your biology is affected. That they're so intertwined, and you know the, the guidelines and the research really reflect how important understanding that principle is when we are working with human beings in just movement, everyday things. Not even in the context of pain, but very much as well in the context of pain uh, and treating human beings. I'm going to put you on the spot here, and you know throw it back at me if you if you don't if you're not familiar with it but yeah I bet you I'm betting you are familiar with Lorimer's study from what, early 2000s I think with the uh, the famous arm blowing up <clears throat> CRPS study where they basically had people with with arm pain you know they've strapped into a jig on a table and yeah can can you talk us through how just because you said our thoughts affect our biology right so when like when we talk about this biopsychosocial model of pain and like how you feel about your experience affects your pain man you know it's like that sounds like some woo-woo fucking bullshit you know it's like yeah you know what is it psychological am i just imagining it am i making it up you know is it some hippie fucking shit you know no this is actual no offense to hippies (laughs) <laughs> this is hard <laughs> biology, right? I'm this a Steiner is- kid, Raph. <laughs> Come on, man. 
<laughs> feeling a bit thrown under the bus here, <laughs> thrown under the the rainbow crocheted bus. Uh, and I think we've all I think we've all been there, Chloe. I, I went and lived with my because you know of the era that we grew up in. I lived with my mum in a fucking ashram in Bangalore. Did you? Yes. That is amazing. Yeah. yeah, so it was the 70s, man. What are you going to do? Yeah, like, yeah, it's true. It's true. I was um, such a little hippie kid. So being there, done that, you know, got the fucking <laughs> pixel dust, pixie dust to prove it. Um, but, you know, I've, I'm, I'm over it now. So, so yeah, so the, this notion of the biopsychosocial approach, like you say, Brendan, it can be kind of nebulous. It can sound kind of airy-fairy. But, you know, in all seriousness, like you say, the the biology, the psychology, which just which just means our thoughts and emotions, and the the social aspect, which is our environment. You know, the the social mores, the zeitgeist, the relationships that we have with people. Um, all of that is they're not three separate things. They they're truly in not not even intertwined. They're just they're the three components of a of a whole person. Um, and yes, yeah, so can you talk us through Lorimer's freaking brilliant? arm experiment <laughs> yeah absolutely and I, 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 they are such compelling studies that you know i think for me yeah really bridge that gap and um so that particular study they took people with complex regional pain syndrome um in their upper limbs and and it's a really painful condition like painful to move and essentially they they had these people lay down and in, in a relaxed position they put emg on their on their arms and their hands to so that's Make sure um, that electrical uh, sensors to yeah. detect any muscle activity. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, yeah. Um, so just to make sure that these people weren't moving and they could control for that. And then they had these individuals uh, think about a painful movement, like literally just think. I think they, no showed movement. Them, they, they showed them pictures of people's hands in different positions and said, can you imagine, mm. you know, bending your wrist this way or that way sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So they've asked them, so wait, they asked them to think about something painful first and then showed the photos? Oh, Raf can probably talk to it better than I can. It's been a little while since I've read the study, but essentially, yeah, generally, the gist was looking at something without moving. They're, they're thinking about it. Uh, so gotcha. the process is thinking about it. And thinking of, they thinking look, about moving, right? They just think yeah. just think about bending your wrist. <laughs> think about extending yep. your wrist. Yep. Think about making a fist, you know? Yep. Absolutely. So we know, you know, it's just it's just a thought, which like we talked about, is, you know, there's a physio physiological response there. And they looked at the uh, amount of sort of inflammation as basically a, a, a proxy of that was uh, circumference of I think the thumb or one of the fingers. I can't remember. Ralph, you might you might remember. Um, and also that person's pain levels as well. And as soon as they started, in comparative to the baseline measures before they even looked at anything, once they'd looked at something, their, their pain level increased significantly. And that swelling, that circumference of those fingers, that, that um, inflammatory response occurred. So we had this physiological response to literally a thought. That physiological response was happening in the periphery. And I think, how cool is that, that a thought can have such a profound effect at protecting us in such a peripheral level. It's not just that let's just change our behavior based on that thought. It is a, no, we're going to have this neuroimmune cascade of, of events occurring that start to protect us, make sure we've got what we need to, to help protect our body on even a cellular level. 
and I, I just love that study. And um, I mean, but you know, everybody listening to this will have had an experience of thoughts changing their physiology. Like, I mean, if you'd imagine your favorite food, right, you start to salivate and you get hungry, right? Well, that's physiology changing as a result of you thinking something. And if, you know, you think about someone you love, you know, you start to feel certain physical sensations, your physiology changes. If you think about something sad or, you know, depressing, your physiology changes, you know, like this is an experience that we have almost on the daily, you know, most of us. And, you know, so why would it, why does it, why does it, it shouldn't be a surprise, I guess, probably is a surprise, but it shouldn't be a surprise in hindsight that it happens in, not just in relation to food or interpersonal relationships, but in probably every aspect of our existence, you know? Um, Yeah. So, and that gets us onto this notion of, of nocebo, which Chloe mentioned at the start, which is basically where, you know, we expect something to be unpleasant or painful or harmful and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, you know, part of that, you know, and, and, and it's tempting to think of that as just like a oh, psychological or all in your mind or you're imagining it, you know, whatever. But it's actually, no, there's physiology involved, you know, like your body actually changes its, you know, properties. There's... um. A, a really interesting case report from I think it was 2011, um, and, and I thought it was it's, that's a really cool um, you know it's, it's just a sample of one obviously went being a case report but it, really cool um, I guess illustration of of the nocebo and um, it was about a, a guy who had enrolled in um, a, a a clinical trial so a randomized controlled trial where one of the groups was getting a um, antidepressant and the other group was getting a placebo. So, you know, everyone thought they were getting an antidepressant, but one group was getting a placebo. Anyway, this guy, he'd, he'd started the trial and he ended up having a, a fight with his partner and they, they broke up and they were, you know, having a, you know, big issues. And he decided that he would take all of his prescribed trial medications, all of the antidepressants and just try and overdose. He's just like, I've had enough. I'm just taking them. Took them. And then the the report from the the emergency department was essentially this this gentleman walked in and said, help me. I've, I've taken all of my medication, all of my antidepressants. Help me. And then collapsed. So actually went unconscious. His blood pressure had dropped. They, you know, obviously rushed him through and whatever. And, and they and they uh, um, had the, the the bottle. And so they're like, oh, okay, well, let's let's get in contact with the, the researcher here and, and find out. And the researcher went and looked him up and said, oh wait, does he actually have the the drug or does he have the placebo drug? Turned out he had been prescribed the placebo. But the meaning that he had subscribed to those pills had a proper physiological response. So there was a behavior to go and seek help based on what he thought the meaning of taking those pills were, but also his physiology changed in 
expectation in meaning from taking those as well. So a drop in blood pressure, drop in, you know, his vitals across the board. And it wasn't until the, the, the lead researcher came in and said, hey, look, I've just checked what you've done is taken the placebos. You're, you're assigned to the placebo group. You're going to be okay. And then within minutes, all of his vitals returned back to baseline and normal and, and he was completely fine and safe. And I think that just really talks to what a nocebo is, the amount of meaning that we assign to, to something that may not have an actual active ingredient within it. Um, and that active ingredient could be the thing that we think is the reason why an exercise works perhaps or, or whatever else that happens in our world. And a placebo, of course, is just a pretend, you know, it's basically just a sugar pill or, or whatever that has no active ingredient at all. And it's just got a label on it that says, you know, powerful antidepressant medi- medication, you know. <laughs> um, do yeah, not I would argue, though, that it day. wasn't <laughs> overly working for him and I would hope that he actually actually got some, got some help after that. Yeah, it was early on in the trial. I don't think he'd really been taking it. Right. Um, as well. But um, we've, you know, one of the things when we teach this subject in our diploma, um, we present a few studies. We look at a few studies on in the placebo arms of uh, clinical trials because all clinical trials for medications these days always have a placebo arm. You know, so half the people, everyone thinks they're getting the drug, but only half the people are getting the real drug. Half mm. the people are just getting a sugar pill or a saline injection or something like that. And um, there, it, it's very, so we have very good research on placebo. It's, it's very well researched. Um, uh, there's quite, a, there's, there's quite a significant dropout rate in these trials for people who have side effects in the placebo group. Wow. Right, so people are taking these, you know, whatever medications, wow. pain medications, cancer medication, whatever they, whatever trial they're in, are, are experiencing like side effects that are so significant, whether it's, you know, dizziness, nausea, headaches, lethargy, flu-like symptoms, you know, foggy mindedness, whatever it is, the symptoms that they experience as a side effect of an inert sugar pill, you know, right, because but they're being told- they expect, yeah. Yeah, because it says the side it on the effects. bottle, right? Watch right. out for these side effects, dizziness, you know, nausea, do not operate heavy machinery. I, I you know, don't know about stuff. YouTube, but I definitely look at side effects on things and I must admit when I take something, I think, oh, am I, oh I'm pretty sure I'm having that side effect. Oh, that's got, I'm definitely having that side effect. That's me. I do. I'm better off actually not looking at yeah. the potential side effects of things, yeah. honestly, because otherwise I start to. Well, maybe they could just write instead of like, you know, you might get really sick and nauseous like like side effects you know you might become awesome you know you might be super like awesome <laughs> do you remember Raph? you told me about the study um where you actually what was it about the generic generic brand versus the name brand of a of a yeah, painkiller so, etc so, yeah so um well uh so you know we know that placebo you know placebo is a real thing it's a real effect it's well documented and it's it's a component of of every you know treatment Right, so even treatments that are the drug, people take natural drug, they there's some component of their benefit that they get is because they expect to get benefit, and then there's also a component that's due to the actual pharmacological action of the of the molecule. Um, so you can't separate out the placebo effect, but um, in some trials I found that, um, and I don't have them in front of me, but uh, it basically. When you take like real, say, uh, paracetamol, which I think in the US they call acetaminophen, um, you know, the name brand in Australia is Panadol. 
Um, and but so, and so you can buy the Panadol, which is 500 milligrams of paracetamol, or you can buy the like the 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 off patient, you know, generic brand one, which is exact same 500 milligrams of paracetamol, but it's just called like pharmacist own brand or something yeah, like that, yeah. you know. And it's in just a you know cheap brown cardboard. <laughs> You know? <laughs> um, Doesn't and, have the sexy font. It's just like no. the cheap ass font. <laughs> right. Or the multi million dollar advertising campaigns or yeah. any of that stuff. Or the shelf placements down the bottom of the shelf yeah, of the yeah, phones, yeah. you know. And yeah. it's you know, it's half the price or whatever. Yeah. Um, it it doesn't relieve pain as effectively. Right? Even though the active ingredient is exactly Since you told me that, Mm. I have not been able to accept the generic (laughs) brand. You've cost me money with that uh, bit of information you gave me. No shit, I've gone in. I've gone in and I've been like, they're like, would you like the generic brand? I'm like, I can't take that because it's not going to work as effectively because psychologically. And they're like, I seriously have had some pharmacists just look at me like, are you nuts? And I'm like, no, there's studies on it. (laughs) They're like, wow, okay, if you want to spend like however much more, be our guest. Yeah. I'm like, I'm sorry, Blue. Thanks, Ralph. <laughs> um, well, so we've probably got, just done that to all our listeners now as well. No one's going to be able to buy the generic brand anymore. Well, I got placebo, so I use generic brand now because um, I got oh. placebo um, on a on a, a plane flight. This was back in the days when we used to get on plane. Remember, we used to just get on planes and oh, fly places. Wow, I can't even I um, can't even imagine it anymore. I think Brendan, you used to travel a fair bit. I used to, you know, to travel to teach interstate, you know, pretty regularly, like two weekends a month I'd be on a plane, you know, from interstate. And um, one time I just was sitting, I was sitting next to this woman, we started chatting and turns out she was a pharmacist, you know, so that I, my ears perked up because I'm like, oh, I'm into, you know, biology. And so we started talking about stuff. Um, and, and you know, towards the end of the flight, I said to her, look, all right, so what's your hot tip? You know, what's the best pain relieving medication? You know, I've got a headache, you know, what do you take if, when you've got a headache, right? And she said, oh, two Nurofen, which is ibuprofen, um, two Panadol, which is paracetamol or acetaminophen, and an espresso. Um, and she said that is, you know, combo. that is that is the, I can't remember the word she used, but that's like the, the gold standard, you know, that's what all the pharmacists take, right, <laughs> when they've got a real bad headache. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, duly noted. And so, you know, ever since then, anytime I, I mean, very rarely I have a headache or whatever, but a toothache or whatever, I just like, bam, two home brand ibuprofen, two home brand, paracetamol and an espresso, feel better straight away, even before there's any chance for me to digest any of that stuff. (laughs) Real better. So thank you, pharmacist, who I met on the plane. (laughs) I feel like that's what I'm going to have to do now to get the same effect that I've been getting from the the no-name. You're costing me money now, Raph. Like, what what are you doing to us? And and I'm sure all of this is so beyond our scope of practice. So, you know, we're like full... Full disclaimer here, only uh, we're not advising that you take any of that. No, I'm just telling you the advice I received on the plane. Yeah, well, look, since you gave me that advice, since I've heard that story, that's been my combo as well, Raph, and it's freaking awesome. Yeah, but- it's awesome. Hard to get to sleep, though. Wow, this is awesome. But let's take a quick break. Posture is a massive part of how Pilates is taught, and there are so many myths and misconceptions surrounding posture, like, Does it actually relate to muscle balance or pain or anything? Well, I've just written an ebook called Three Myths About Posture in Pilates. And in it, I share the science on posture, what's true and what's a myth. And you might be surprised. It's free to download. Just use the link in the show notes. 
now, our mission is to empower you with science-based tools to become a better, more effective, more successful, and happier instructor. And this ebook is a great place to start. So you can find the download link in the show notes, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, let's get back to the episode. You're right, so... Brendan, there's this contemporary understanding of pain, which is that it's a biopsychosocial phenomenon. In other words, it's not just pain equals tissue damage. It's there might be no tissue damage. In fact, the International Association of for the Study of Pain, like imagine how fucking nerdy you have to be about pain, right? To be in the International Association for the Study of Pain. Brendan would uh, be in it happily. Are you a member, Brendan? Brendan, I bet Brendan's like member? trying to get uh, onto the board. Can, can I can I plead the fifth or whatever it is? That- <laughs> Brendan's like the most pain nerdy person. I I, lo- I love you, Brendan. Um. Anyway, so like, there's this if thing- for our listeners, I don't know, you, like if anyone is watching a video of this behind Brendan at the moment, there are these uh, space-looking helmet devices on the wall that measure brain stuff. Yeah, they're, they're just EEG caps. I don't use them myself. It makes me look smarter though if I have them behind me. Um, I'm placeboing you right now. Um, but yeah, it just looks at um, acti- activity of the brain. So, you know, our lab can look at, you know, brain activity during different experiments and activities and whatever. So yeah, that's a part of what our lab does. I just wanted to flesh out how uh, into uh, pain can you can you reel off the IASP, the International Association for the Study of Pain, definition of pain for the us? The new one, the new yeah. one, the latest one. The, the new one, yeah. yeah. It, it I delivered it on the weekend. I might even be able to. I'm not sure. Oh, really? How well, you, you go, go first, first? Because you I go reckon first. you've got a higher chance of getting you it go first. right than me. <laughs> it's got to be um, the updated version, though. Yeah, no, you're putting me on the spot here. But essentially, the take-homes, you know, it's it's an emotional um, and sensory um, experience that's associated with um, or resembles that of of tissue damage. So when when we do, you know, have tissue damage, we can or described in terms or or described in terms. Thank you. That that's great. Lucky. Um, to have you here, Chloe. Thank you. Hey, Thank Chloe. you. I'm not just here for the lols. Maybe you should join the, the IASP. And the radio head. Thanks for yeah. that. What was that? I, um, <laughs> I, I think we've got a new head of pain nerd in, in this little group we've got going on here. So, well done, Chloe. Thank you. Um, but, yeah, good job. But, yeah, it, but it resembles that of um, or described in terms of such as t- tissue damage. And I think that that's the important thing or one of the important parts of that definition is that it doesn't require tissue damage to experience pain um, and, that, and that there isn't this uh, one-to-one ratio between tissue damage and pain uh, and um, that it is this emotional component to it and, and sensory and, and I think we often forget about that, that complexity of it. And, and yeah, if we are just treating biomechanics, then we were probably not treating, you know, the, the person's pain, pain experience or treating the person rather. And that's the, that's the thing, Brendan, that, you know, and you and I have talked about this before. In fact, you and I did a little Instagram live on this exact topic, which was super cute of us, uh, maybe like two years ago or something now where we talked about the fact that you cannot have one without the other you can't there's still that uh, perception that if it's an acute injury if you if you fall over and you've broken your leg then it is literally just biology that's it that is the only thing that is that is impacting on your experience of pain 
in that moment. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's, you know, and I think we can all remember something where we've hurt ourselves, where we go, yeah, there's definitely been tissue damage there. Like, oh, mate, you know, if, you, been- if you break your leg, your leg freaking hurts, right? Like it does. Right. Like there's no denying that. It does. But but my perception of breaking that leg, and this is how I describe it to my students, is well, also what other context is there around me breaking my leg? What, what does it mean to me to have broken my leg? Is breaking my leg meaning now I can't work, uh, I've got no one – to look after me, uh, or, you know, I've got no income coming in or have I broken my leg and that's okay. I've got, I've got sick pay and I've got, you know, loved ones who are going to make me soup and look after me and all like, it, it's all going to kind of go in uh, to what, am I doing an okay job with this? Yeah, no, absolutely. And okay. I think when we think about <laughs> those thoughts that you're, you're, you're bringing up there, Chloe, are, you know, they're really important elements of you know how is this person going to behave or how are we going to behave in our rehabilitation to get back to the things we want to be doing because if we think oh my god my career's over what am I going to do how am I going to the family you know maybe you become quite despondent and you know you're not that engaged in your rehabilitation plan so if we you know from a healthcare perspective are kind of acknowledging that and trying to gauge how this person is thinking about their situation their issue then they're going to it's, it's going to come up with a lot of meaningful information that that becomes tangible in how, how do we help support this person to having a really positive recovery with healthy beliefs around their body and their environment and you know return to their lifestyle and if we just ignore that like as if they're not important then then we start telling them that they've failed rehab and Mm. all of these other nasty things that I think is really quite unfair especially if we've not taken the time to treat them as a person we've just treated their tissue Mm. and we see this a lot and our um our Listeners who are working with uh, clients in a clinical setting, etc., would see this a lot when the client comes in with the the scan that that reads like a page long of of all all these scary words. And I think, Brendan, the most recent one I spoke to you about was uh, my dad, who um, you know went in and they were concerned that he might have um, a break in his arm and they went in and, you know, so they scanned. They should have just been looking for that and instead they they gave him this, they gave him this like kind of two-page report. You know, my dad's 67. He's got some general, you know, changes in there that, that most, you know, people as they age would have. He's a very fit, healthy, strong man who works out like three times a day. <laughs> genuinely and he got that report and literally he read that report and he went oh my my elbow's fucked it's fucked you wouldn't believe all the things that are wrong with it Chloe and I said okay let's let's I said I'm gonna and this is probably fed into the the therapeutic alliance I said I'm gonna get Brendan to look at this I said Brendan works with some of the the top pain researchers in the world dad and dad's like okay yep get Brendan send it to Brendan and I know I sent it to you, Raf, too. And um, and Brendan, your advice to Dad being like, "This is a shit report. They sh- there was no need for them to tell you all of this and and all of that." Actually, Dad went, "Oh, it's just normal stuff, isn't it? It's just like I've got you know, it's just normal stuff that happens as you age. I need to to crack on." And the next thing I know, uh, I get a call from him, kind of like a week or two later, because I told him, you know, he needs to do gradual 
building back up, et cetera, probably rested a bit. There was uh, potentially a little break in there, et cetera. And he goes, Chloe, Chloe, I listened to your advice. I just did 10 planks on it today, just 10 instead of my normal. And I went, okay, dad, we might need to like <laughs> not do 10 planks on it just yet. Give the tissue time to heal. But it was that that change in perception uh, from, from catastrophizing and uh, being basically nocebo'd with all this unnecessary, you know, scary shit. So de-threatening, I think that's a really important thing when we're thinking about pain and then we're thinking about will someone be despondent to what's going on to them and it's like, oh, fuck it, my my elbow's fucked now, you know, it's not going to get better, mm, I'm, I'm older so there's absolutely no chance it's going to get better, etc. as opposed to, right, okay, sure, yeah, there is some tissue damage here. We can calm it down, build it back up. It will heal. You are resilient. You are adaptable, right? And how can we – and I think that that then uh, segues beautifully into uh, talking about uh, the the idea of human beings being anti-fragile. I'd love to hear about that. I love it. Um, nice segue. Thank you. Um, Seamless, I thought. Yeah. So um, it, it's a really – nice concept i think this anti-fragility um which is kind of the opposite of fragility um uh, nicholas taleb Bassim, i think he's the author's name who wrote the book anti-fragile um and, and and it's the idea is um you know a lot of our society when we're talking about uh, in the context of human bodies and recovery and exposure to to to, to our environments that you know we talk about our bodies as being fragile that we kind of wear out so phrases and metaphors like wear and tear and you know the body like a machine um, i think are really common in our society uh, and, and they kind of resemble a more of a a, a fragile um I guess, it's like idea. if you it's like if you do too many I'm, I'm thinking you know along the lines of um mcgill and and Locke here I should never have said his name on air, but and I'm thinking <laughs> a bit of Andrew Locke there. I'm thinking about you know the the repeated the the classic that they love to hold on to that the repeated flexion or the repeated flexion under load, and you are ultimately going to wear your discs out and you're going to have an injury, as yeah, opposed absolutely. to build up your tissue capacity to that movement pattern and that load, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think it's important that we we put out the caveat. You know, there is a point where tissue you know has a finite uh, capacity as well, so we we can go through that and and break down tissue that 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 can occur. Um, but given that, I mean, when we talk about something fragile, it'd be something like a glass, right? That it doesn't like volatility, it doesn't like um, noise and you know pressure on it. So what we tend to do is we put it in the cupboard and we put it away from things that are volatile that could break it. Um, and and you know that's kind of if we think about that in the terms of a lot of um, people in pain. They become fear avoidant. They go, "Oh my god, mm. my body's broken. It's there's something wrong with it. I need to avoid certain activities or the activities that created this issue in the first and certain place. movements. I mean, I avoided so, flexion for over twelve months when I originally hurt my back. Many right. Many, many, if you many think ago. flexing forward is going to wear out your spine, then why would you do it? It's, it's common sense to actually yeah. avoid that, right? Yeah. Especially if you've got this underpinning understanding of the body as being fragile. Same as knee valgus or, you know, 
um, you know, your shoulders having to adopt a certain kinematic uh, movement pattern to be able to lift anything overhead, um, whatever it might be, they sort of all reinforce this idea that, you know, we're potentially fragile if we, if we do it wrong. Whereas we've got lots of evidence lots it's it's beyond that um that that we aren't fragile as human beings we're we're nothing like a car that wears out over time that needs parts replacing in fact we're we're a human organism where we're um, adapt we adapt to stress we adapt to volatility and like i said yeah there is a limit to to that at once but if we kind of gradually expose the loads and the stresses to to us and that's not just necessarily like the physical load of a weight or a spring on a reformer it can be you know the, the stresses from you know work and our lifestyle and everything else that's going on that we can adapt to these and that we can become you know essentially stronger and healthier um when we do engage with this so rather than wear and tear it's like wear and repair and we we become more what we call anti-fragile and in More. fact, if, if you're listening to this and you're an exercise professional, you make your whole living by this concept of people um, exposing people to controlled stress in the form of exercise to elicit a response to them, be, you know, of them becoming uh, more robust, more tolerant of that stress. You know, when you expose a muscle to a stress, you know, if the stress, if you expose it to not enough stress, well, the muscle shrinks, it atrophies, gets weaker. If you expose it to too much stress, it tears. If you expose it to just the right amount of stress, it gets stronger. And so, you know, it's it's not it's not a case of, uh, you know, we've got to protect the body from wear and tear. It's a case of like we've got to choose how much stress we apply. You know, because if we if we sat, you know put ourselves in a flotation tank or something wrapped in cotton wool for a year, you know, you wouldn't be healthier at the end of that experience. You know apart from being stark raving insane, you'd, you know, <laughs> your bone density would be, you know, reduced, your muscles would be atrophied, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd be in terrible shape physically. And uh, likewise, if, you know, if you, if you have never exercised and all of a sudden decide to run a marathon every day, five days a week, well, that's, that's going to overload your tissues and you are going to cause some damage. But if you work up to it, you know, over weeks, months and years, you know, you, you can achieve incredible, people can achieve incredible feats of strength, endurance, flexibility, you know, uh, in like people lift five times their body weight, you know, people run hundreds of miles through the desert, like people do incredible stuff. And, and I think too, and I think about that, Raph, also the incredible, um, I've been really loving following Cody's uh, journey, Cody uh, Jussel, who's um, going to be one of our trainers. She's fantastic. She's in the States. And she works with a lot of adaptive athletes and she uh, has just come back from assisting the adaptive, well, the CrossFit Games in, and particularly focusing in on the adaptive uh, participants and what they can do uh, adaption-wise uh, with missing limbs, etc., is freaking phenomenal i highly suggest following uh, an instagram page called i am adaptive 
if you think that the human body is fragile and you think that it matters if you've got one shoulder that's a little bit higher than the other or you've got one leg that's a smidge shorter than the other, are you freaking kidding me? So, yeah, get around it. Yeah, go yeah, I'm excited. Of- oh, so, sorry, Raph. I'm, I'm, I'm just so excited about the Paralympics coming up because I think yes. it is one of these awesome um, events that really speaks to actually how anti-fragile human beings are, how right. incredibly capable humans are to adapt to these stresses and volatility that we're exposed mm-hmm. to. Um, and, you know, we, we can have, we can live with scoliosis. We can live without limbs. We can just do incredible things when we're exposed to it. And yet, yet when we come to the context of exercise prescription, we think as soon as you go into a little bit of, you know, uh, <laughs> knee valgus or, or our, anterior our pelvic drops, tilt or <laughs> that we're going to wear our body out is, you know, quite like, as you said, Chloe, I think quite a ridiculous or, um, or not ridiculous if everything you've been exposed to so far is about all the things that can go wrong in the human body and how fragile we are, mm. then it actually probably makes all the common sense in the world because this is exactly how I was trained. You know, through an exercise physiology degree, you taught about everything that can go wrong with the human body. You don't really talk too much about all the things that can go right and how we can adapt. Um, I mean, other than actually just prescribing load, like Raf talked about there in terms of, um, you know, prescribing, you know, that Goldilocks principle that, that that's getting the sweet zone of the right amount of load where they do adapt to it and that sort of thing. But in terms of like the biomechanics and that, we, we do adapt to these things. And, the, and it's, it, you know. it's pretty nuts still. Like it's still, it, let me, so it's pretty prevalent still in the Pilates stratosphere obviously not with our Breathe EDU students and grads um, or with, uh, I would say, a lot of our listeners uh, because our listeners are proving to be extremely cognitively agile and uh, adaptive themselves, which has been freaking awesome. Um, But what I have no, it's still just when I think the nonsense is over, like I'll get a a, a direct message from, for instance, I got a direct message the other day from a current student who had put up um, a post on her Insta of her doing, I think it maybe was some variations of double kick. So, for instance, laying laying on laying prone, clasping hands behind back, and then lifting into extension. And as per uh, good old JP and Contrology, and when I say JP, I'm referring to, of course, Joseph Pilates, uh, you know, full expressions of movement. So, you know, if you're going into extension, you are also going into extension of the cervical. Like eyes are up and back. It's not this whole like, oh, if I'm going to extend my back, but I've got to keep some sort of perceived neutral in my cervical, right? I shouldn't take my eyes back. I should be looking straight ahead. And... uh, quite a prominent uh, Pilates instructor, uh, and by prominent I mean very large following, slid into her DMs and said, oh, just just because I'm a, a bit of a stickler for a bit of a stickler for um, alignment, I just wanted to give you a tip. I, really, you should just be looking straight ahead. And I love uh, that I love so much that our student felt empowered to very respectfully uh, write back and say the reasons why she wasn't doing that and why she felt empowered to actually look 
back and uh, like look up uh, and then she, it was so awesome. She sent me a screenshot of that and said, did I, did I answer this right? And I'm like, oh, my God, I've never been prouder. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, that's, that's, that's great, Chloe. But it's um, like who thinks, do you know what I mean? Like seriously, what sort of fucking damage? I'm sorry, but what damage am I going to do by bloody looking behind me as opposed to straight ahead? No, but seriously, but no, there's no, no load, there's no. But we have these kind of paradoxical you know, views, like we talked about it in an episode ages ago, good and bad muscles. We have, it's like good and bad body parts to move, right? So it's like, you know, who wants more hip mobility? Me, me, me. Who wants who, more? Flex the know? shit out of your abs, that's yeah, fine. But Yeah, so it's, it's, it's great, great to flex your hip, but it's not good to flex your spine. It's great to extend your, your hip, but it's not great to extend your, your neck. You know, so we have these kind of paradoxical, oh, if we extend our hips, that's good. If we extend our necks, that's bad. You know, it's like, and why is that? You know, that, and, and there's there's this rule that I imagine what this lady that you was referring to was, like, you know, that I heard when I was a kid, figuratively in Pilates, that the, the cervical spine should follow the line of the thoracic spine, right? Well, we know from research that the thoracic spine only has about 10 degrees of movement right? from one, you know, from full flexion to full extension. So it's like, but your cervical spine's got fucking 90 degrees, more right? than 90 degrees Right, so what are we doing? Are we wanting to restrict <laughs> the movement of our cervical? It's just, yeah. so, so they can't, so, so people like that come at it with, feeling like it's coming from from a, an anatomical, biomechanical knowledge, but it's actually not. That's the thing. You know, what is it that Greg Lehman says, Raph, the um, biomechanics? The biomechanics negate- invalidates the biomechanics, yeah. But, yes, yeah, so yeah. talk, to us, talk to us about, Brendan, about this idea of anti-fragility because I think we have it in some body parts, right? So I'm pretty sure just about everybody in the fitness world, regardless of whether they're, a, you know, whatever their profession is or whatever their bent is, you know, pretty much everyone would agree that if you want to get a stronger biceps, you've got to put load through your biceps. You know, I don't think we'd find that's very controversial. But if we said, okay, if you want to get a stronger neck, you've got to put load through your neck. Well, we know that's controversial because we did an episode on it and there was a shitstorm. you know. So, and, and this applies to other sort of like, you know, quotes, fragile, air quotes, areas of the body like the lower back, you know, um, that like the shoulder. Sometimes people, you know, get freaked out about the shoulder. Like you said, you know, your scapula's got to move just so, otherwise, you know, don't load it. Um, and whereas, you know, we've got no problems on day one of someone's you know, first exercise class from being sedentary for 10 years, smashing the shit out of their abs, you know, no problem. You know, that's good, right? But we don't use that word, we don't use that approach with someone's neck or their low back or their, their you know, like it's just crazy paradox to me. <laughs> can, can you riddle with that for me? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it is fascinating, isn't it? Because like one of the things like we'll often talk about it in some of our courses is, you know, especially in the lower back course, how, you know, we've got this underlying assumption that there's this wrong way to move our back uh, or wrong way to move our neck or move our shoulder. However, it's like, all right, so... Um, tell, tell me, show me how you move your elbow wrong, right? And then you get these people in the, in the class trying to extend and flex their elbow, trying to figure out actually how, what's the right and wrong way to do this. <laughs> okay, all right, now do it with your knee. 
And then they're there trying to flex and extend their knee, trying to figure out what's the right and wrong way to do that. And then, all right, show me the ankle. Come on, we've got to figure out one of these. But when we come to like the back and probably the back more than any other area is like there is this real right and wrong way that we need to move this. And, and so, you know, and it goes, all right, so where does this come from? Because, you know, if there's a right and wrong way to do the back, but, you know, most of these other joints seem, you know, there isn't a right or wrong way. There's no rule book here. Where does that come from? What's the research actually show? Is there an increase in risk if we move it one way over the other? And that's where it becomes really fascinating is, you know, if we're talking efficiency and injury prevention and we look at the literature behind that, it's like, well, actually, it starts to fall apart a little bit. So if we create a rule around something, and it doesn't actually decrease the likelihood of injury or improve efficiency, then what is it doing? It's creating a constraint. And if we create a constraint that alters the way that person can engage in their environment and you know, the, the things they can interact with or do, then we've inadvertently created a disability for that individual without even realizing it. Right? So we may have been trying to help and whatnot, but I think this is where it becomes really important that we do sort of engage enough with, you know, what does the literature actually say about this, this idea that I, I'm using to help this individual? Does it actually do what I think it does? Or am I just assuming it does because someone's taught me this or that I had read it in an article somewhere? And I think this is a really big part where we can create this fragility that we can create um, essentially disability by creating constraints that aren't actually based in, in science to help prevent injury, to actually help someone maybe even restore function or even to even be more efficient over time as well. Um, and so I'm really riffing with whatever you asked before right now, Ash. But, I, thought um, that, I thought that was uh, really powerful what you just said, Brendan, that we can actually create disability for someone. That's huge. Yeah, and I, I think this is something, and, I, and I'm 100% guilty of this myself, and I think I've... I'm sure a, we all are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's only based on reflection and reading more and more and being engaged in, in you know, science and reading things and that I've come to kind of understand the consequences of what we do. And I think it is actually quite profound, even like without my exercise physiology hat on, just as another human being yeah. providing any advice on movement or exercise that it is weighted, that this does influence someone's experiences, the way that they perceive their body and consequently how they perceive their environment yeah. as well. And so it's really about checking ourselves. Where does this information come from? This cue that I'm using, is this actually something that is helpful for someone to, to, to move more, to engage more in their environment, to do the things in their world and their life that they find valuable, that they see meaning in. And, and if, it, if it doesn't, when we check that, then maybe we've got to find ways of how do we remove that narrative, that cue, or even that type of exercise from our vocabulary or, or skill set. Mm. I've told this, um, I think I've told this story before, but reflecting back on uh, my first uh, training as a Pilates instructor and w which was Stott 
and when we had to do all the plumb line tests and the, you know, the painstaking, like you had, you actually had to find faults with the alignment of the human being in front of you. Like that was yeah, that kind was of part of it. Like, of yeah. So you had to search for it. And if you weren't finding air quotes faults, uh, you, do you know what I mean? You weren't going to pass. And I remember like my a really good friend of mine came up from Sydney. I was in Melbourne and I said, oh, I need some help. I'm, you know, studying for my, studying for my tests, my exams. Uh, and I said, can I do, can I do a postural assessment on you? And I basically, you know, wrote down 50 million things that, you know, were quote unquote out of alignment. Yeah. Da, 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 da. And no joke, Brendan, when I was uh, leaving, so at my going away uh, in Sydney, last year, late last year, she was there and she goes, hey, Chloe, remember when I came came and saw you in Sydney when I still remember back to when you were first starting to be a Pilates instructor, remember all those things you found that were wrong with me? You never actually fixed them. Like we never got, we never got around to fixing them. And so she's gone. So that was like eight, nine years ago. And all this time she's carried around this uh, belief that she has all of these things out of alignment and apparently I told her that that would then lead to back pain and God knows what else, right? And she's gone for all those years now thinking that and I just sat there mortified, mortified. And and, and you as as a person, as a trainer, you were trying to help her and I think that's what's really important to remember that you weren't trying to be a bad person. You know, at the at the same time, it's like you were doing the best with the knowledge you had at mm. that point in time to to help that individual. Um, mm. As as was I when I've had exactly the same sort of story. So where does the where does the response? Like, I'm just sort of I'm riffing a little bit now, and I'm trying to think about it more because we're thinking about okay, well, yeah, that's right. Like I as a Raphael Bender was my educator and, and stop was the, the syllabus. And I was told this is the way of the world. And I wanted to be, you know, a a good student and learn it. And I thought that that was the truth. And, and it was coming to me from a trusted source, right? It was a trusted source. So the responsibility of, of elevating, uh, health literacy and, uh, et cetera. And, it's got to lie with the educators, right? At some point, like, do you know what I mean? Like, cause I'm thinking, I'm, I'm sitting here right now and I'm thinking about, okay, we, we know at Breathe Education and what you're doing at the Knowledge Exchange, et cetera, et cetera. We, we all know we've elevated, right? And we are, we are presenting to our best knowledge, the, the most current up-to-date uh, and, and clinical guidelines, et cetera, current best practice to, um, not freak people out, get people moving fearlessly, et cetera, et cetera, yeah? But we are not the norm. I, I, breathe education is not the norm. I would love it to be the norm, but we, we simply aren't the norm. We'd be we out know of a job if we were the norm. Everyone would be doing it. <laughs> but at the same time, so it's like, but we don't want to, you know, but, but the ultimate goal is – I don't want people going around thinking that they're, you know, ultimately doomed to fucking back yeah. pain because they've got an anterior pelvic tilt, right? But and I've said that to someone before. So how do we how do we stop this nonsense? Well, you know, I think how well, I think there are two answers I'd like to chip in with, and then whatever you want to add, Brendan. But I think well, how do we stop it? I think we're doing it right. We're we're having public conversations about it. We're educating people. We're sharing, you know. There's, there are copious citations in the show notes of all of our episodes, you know, so we're not just making shit up. We're, 
we're we're referring to current recent high quality science so that's you know we're doing it i think um uh, and you know if people, if people want to know more and and get more educated they can come and do a, a training with us um or with the knowledge exchange you know and there are a few others out in the world doing things pretty well we mention them pretty regularly greg layman adam meekins ben cormack you know there are a bunch of people mm. out there doing doing good I work i think raf i'm thinking more my frustration doesn't i, I know there's so many wonderful people mm. out there and and i do believe what i'm seeing in the physio industry is i'm seeing a lot of that actually hurtling forward in in a really positive mm. way what i'm not seeing the same uh the same pace Mm-hmm. Is in the Pilates stratosphere. Oh yeah, and and personal training. I think at a Pilates, if we look at oh yeah, like I would agree with pers- chiropractic. Agree with personal training. You know, um, they're stuck in the nineteen eighties still. A- exercise um, physiology. We, oh, we still have you know these things. You know. Yeah. Um, and, so, and then we've still got low back pain as the leading disability. Yeah. You know, and worldwide. Like, come on, epidemic. people. <laughs> Um, yeah. Catch the so fuck I th- up. <laughs> I think absolutely I agree with you, Chloe. You know, the, the responsibility, you know, squarely lies with the educators to update mm. their fucking shit. And, Correct. you know, teach something that is in line with present national and international guidelines. You know, I mean, it's not that it, – this is – what we're talking about today is not fucking cutting edge. Like with this biopsychosocial approach to pain has been enshrined in the Australian national guidelines since 2005. You know, like this is you know three quarters of a fucking almost like fifteen years. You know, with this is this is old. You know, and, not cutting. And Louis Gifford was pioneering it, wasn't that back in the nineteen yeah, nineties? Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but so all right, yes. Yeah, so absolutely, educators, you know, get your shit together, please. But but the, here's the thing: if you're a consumer of education, if if you're an instructor out there and you're looking for ongoing education, whether you're a Pilates instructor, a physio, or you know, personal trainer or whatever, and don't even get me started on yoga. But you know, like what I see when I look around a lot of 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 educators is they are advertising on the packet. It says science based, right? It says you know we use modern science, right. and then you look look you look under the hood, and it's like oh yeah, this. We also cover the, post, we alignment protocols yeah, and we right. cover posture types and right. we cover 19, cross slings and yeah. we cover blah, 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 bullshit, right. bullshit, so, bullshit, so bullshit. Cutting edge stuff from the 1940s and 50s, right, about this, you know, based on a biomedical model of, you know, pain equals tissue damage and posture equals muscle balance and we can correct posture by blah, 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 blah. And, and actually, yes, that was good science, you know, literally three quarters of a century ago. But you know now it's well and truly outdated. It's well and truly debunked. It's it's you know it's not best practice by any stretch of the imagination. So how can how can people as consumers you know when they look on the packet we're saying our education science based. The knowledge education is saying we're science based. And then you know X Y Z training school who's teaching fucking postural analysis Reiki and fucking chakra alignment is also telling you know saying <laughs> our education is science based. And so how's how's a relatively uneducated consumer? you know, who's not a scientist, to tell the difference. Well, I would say, you know, key things that you, you need to look for and you need to ask your educator, uh, is your is your curriculum in line with current national guidelines, right? If they stare at you like they don't know what the fuck you're talking about, that's all the answer you need, <laughs> right? Um, and, and secondly, you know, could you, you know, could you send me some examples of citations, you know, research papers that you refer to in the course, and you should be looking for research papers that are what's called systematic reviews or meta-analyses, 
Okay, so these are reviews of the whole totality of a literature in an area, and they should be five years old or younger, right? So something in the last five years that is a systematic review or meta-analysis, and it should also be in line with current guidelines. So if you pull out one study from 1963 or something with 12 participants in it that found posture analysis was you know useful or whatever, that's, that's not science-based, right? What you need is a 2020 meta-analysis looking at the totality of the literature over the last 60 years and and summing up, okay, what's, what's everything science knows about this summed up in one paragraph? What do you got, Brendan? Uh, I, I love it, mate. I, I could listen to you all day. Um, no, it was just reminding me of, um, I think Lars Ave Marie put a, um, uh, a little snippet up of, a, I think he's an Irish comedian, um, the other day, and um, Lars is not an Irish about- comedian. He's a, he's a Danish comedian. <laughs> oh, oh, Lars is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and it, it, it was titled, uh, or, or the snippet of this guy's stand-up was titled "Science Doesn't Know Everything." And he's going going on about it. it's like, and I hate it when people say, "Well, you know what? Science doesn't know everything." And his response to that was, "Yeah, I know. Science wouldn't exist." if it thought it knew everything. Like the whole <laughs> idea of science is about asking questions and filling them in the gaps. Just because there's still gaps about things we don't know doesn't mean that you can go and just fill in those gaps with whatever fairy tale you want, right? And I just thought it was it was just so well communicated of like actually the purpose of science is to really figure out, you know, what is the closest understanding of reality can we get? You know, so what we are doing reflects reality and and starts to take out all of as much of the bias as we can and all the perceptual inferences that our that our brains you know do that are so flawed in so many ways i mean they're incredible don't get me wrong but we are so flawed in many ways and science can really show us all right what actually explains what we're seeing and if we're not using that and we're just relying on our own clinical experience what we see happen when we you know prescribe an exercise and someone feels better that the reason why they're feeling better is probably not for the reason that you think it is and that's what science can start to help us understand so that we can cut the crappy stories that we tell people that we can get rid of the crappy interventions or things that actually it's not because of that specifically that help that individual then we can actually use the things that are meaningful and helpful and that help people to engage in their world again um, or to actually just live happy healthy lives without fear of their bodies or their environment mm, mm. like richard Feynman said the the Nobel laureate physicist, I think he won it in 1962 or 64 or something for, for theoretical physics, and um, a great teacher. Um, I, I just love him. Um, uh, he said, you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. <laughs> so true, isn't it? We, we all, we, and he's just talking about the fact that we all, first we come up with our belief systems, and then we look for evidence to confirm what we already want to believe. <laughs> That's that's just how human, you know, you, me, Chloe, everybody listening to this, you know, everybody behaves this way. And it, it's basically, it's built into our, you know, genetics that we do this, you know, it's kind of hardwired into how our brains work. But um, science is, and science is our best tool, it's not perfect, but it's a gazillion times better than the next best thing that we've got. It's our best tool for avoiding that or minimising that you know, 
tendency that we have to just look for evidence that supports what we already want to believe. Absolutely. And I think like our identity and like how we identify as a person and the groups that we identify with play like an important role in that as well. Like for me, like, you know, if you think, you know, I identify as a Pilates instructor and that's like the core thing that I want to fit into. And, you know, to be a Pilates instructor to you means to be able to correct people's exercise and give, you know, all of these hundred cues and prescribe exercise to look a very specific way then of course you're going to conform to that. You're going to do those sorts of things. But if you you shift your identity to actually, I want to identify as someone that helps someone move as freely and as fearlessly as they possibly can, all right, with the best quality information that I can expose myself, then you're going to behave in a way that reflects that. That means that you can be flexible in updating your your understanding of something that you can say oh you know what i was doing last week that actually isn't the best information i'm okay with that i feel vulnerable enough that i can say hey i found something better because it fits with my identity it's like so i'm going to do this behavior now and i, and I think that for me was a really really powerful when, when i go you know what i don't identify as an exercise physiologist because if i do then for whatever happens regardless of that person's needs i'm always going to be prescribing exercise right? But there's times when people don't actually need exercise. They're already doing, you know, all the exercise in the world and it's fantastic living healthy lifestyles. And they just need someone to give them some permission that they're doing the right things and their body is healing appropriately and whatever it might be. So- Or to tell them to uh, disregard their nocebic scan report, for example. Yeah, ex- exactly. That That's it. So I, I think, you know, asking ourselves, you know, what do we identify as? Who do, you know, what are the groups that we belong to? And, and how, how, you know, are, are they the best groups for the, what we're trying to achieve and what we value in life? Mm. And, and I think that can be a big, big thing. There's the episode, uh, an episode of a podcast that Chloe and I have talked about uh, before called You Are Not So Smart, um, which is all about examining how, you know, people's tendency to engage in what's called motivated reasoning basically what we said you look for evidence of the things that you already basically want to believe um and and ignore (laughs) evidence (laughs) that they're not true um the the latest episode uh 2012 um with jay van bavel um is called the power of us and it's about um uh, just listening to it in the car last night um it's about basically how social identity is the best predictor of beliefs. Like, so if you look in the U.S., they're talking in the U.S., but um, uh, political affiliation is the best predictor of uh, vaccination status in, in the U.S., right? So if you're, if you're a male Republican, you're way less likely to be vaccinated than any other group of, of humans. And that, you know, we have we all have these social affiliations. So, you know, not interested in talking about re- Republicans versus Democrats or you know, vaccination here, but you know we all affiliate. You know, so most of us listening to this probably affiliate as I'm a Pilates instructor, or I'm a yoga instructor, or I'm a physiotherapist, or I'm an exercise physiologist, and therefore, if I'm a Pilates instructor, well, you know, Pilates instructors believe certain things. You know, we believe in core strength, we believe in posture, we believe in correct muscle activation, we believe in cueing certain, I don't certain believe ways. Believe in and, any of those things, but yes, I guess here we go. <laughs> but, 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 you know, as, you know, as like, well, I mean, when I was just, you know, 
first becoming a Pilates instructor, and I don't know if this is still a thing for young Pilates instructors because I don't personally perceive it, but maybe it's still totally out there and I just don't notice it anymore. But I felt I had to dress in a certain way. You know, it was all about Lululemons and having a certain look and, you know, like, you know, I don't know if that's still a thing. It probably is, but I don't give a shit about it anymore. I just wear whatever the fuck I want. But, you know, back in the day, I felt like I, I felt like I needed to fit in and fit a certain image, you know. And I think, you know, that is – and I didn't perceive that as like I feel a pressure. It was just like that's what I did. You know, I aspired to it, right? Um, and, and, and just like, you know, when I was a musician in my 20s, I wore a certain type of clothing. I wore, you know, loose-fitting Hawaiian shirts unbuttoned and – Did you? you? Know, cut off denim jeans and, you know, unshaven and all that. Like, that's, that's what you wear when you're a musician in photos? Byron Bay. Yeah, I've got some photos. Um, I've got a photo of me playing bass at the Byron Bay Music Festival or a second 1999 or something like that. Um, we need this I'll, photo. Yeah, I'll this this is the stuff photo. for the show notes right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 we need this photo. This photo um, must be in the show notes. Can you put photos in show notes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll link to it. Um, okay, yay. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, and, you know, like if okay, I'd I gone on stage it's at like- the Byron Bay Music Festival wearing a suit and tie, right, mm. That everyone would have looked at me like I'm some kind of weirdo, right? But I was in cut-off army shorts and no shirt, so I was like, yeah, I fit right in because that's what everyone else was wearing, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. And so it's the same with beliefs, right? So, mm. you know, as as yoga instructors, as exercise physiologists, whatever, yeah. we, all, we all have – we inherit certain belief systems. And so it, it's – I think you know one of the like Brendan said, if you can, if you can, if you're able to step outside that, and this is what made the biggest difference for me, and I think for you as well, Chloe, and I think for you as well, Brendan, is being able to to step away from like, you know, I define myself as I do X modality, you know, whether whatever that modality is, right, and changing that to I define myself as I just do whatever science tells me is the best thing to do. Right, and if that's different today than what it was yesterday, well, awesome. <laughs> it means we got better, you know. I, I let it go. You know, hold on tightly, let go lightly. It's like, yeah, who gives a shit if we stop doing something because we realise it's not the best thing to do anymore? Great. Doesn't is no threat to our identity anymore, mm. you know. There's got. To, I'm. I'm going to guess. There's a lot of um to to be able to. Well, there's a few things that are important to be able to make that leap as well. Uh, there would be things such as. The ability, like cognitive, being cognitively agile, right? Um, and I know that there's quite a lot of studies that have been, well, there's some studies that I've seen, I shouldn't go quite a lot, uh, in regards to different personality types and whether you're more likely um, to, uh, your psychological profile more likely to experience more backfire effect as opposed to being cognitively agile. So there's probably something to be said in there. And then I think But I about, think if you're listening to this, you're probably probably doing pretty good. Yeah. And then, and then I think about, you know, well, I actually personally, I don't remember having any difficulty going to doing the next thing that was best practice. But I also know that that was because you like, I, so I basically you as my educator, Raf, I literally believe probably now I probably now I I think I've uh, I think my critical skills have developed and I would now question things more so but before I think I really you, you know thought about, about critical thinking exactly yeah. exactly so now I would I'm more likely to actually question and query and you uh. know but, but uh, historically basically if you say to me hey Chloe 
this is the way, this is the new thing, this is how we're doing, I'm, I'm like, okay, cool, I'm on board, let's go. You, like I trust you. So um, I guess, you know, that we might be seeing – Certain so schools of thought being held yeah, back because but you no, shouldn't but I'm, trust me. But see, know? I'm saying, but but I've developed since then. I do yeah. still, you know, I trust you, but I would also you question things if trust I trust me. If, but you should expect me to bring evidence. You know, you right. shouldn't just expect me to say, "Hey, everyone, we're not doing biopsychosocial anymore. Right. We're now doing this new thing." You'd be right. like, "Okay, that's interesting. What is, where's the research?" Yeah. So <laughs> I'm guessing, you know, people that I'm just looking at my. I'm, my hands are going purple. It's quite quite cool here in Melbourne today. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah, it's interesting. Well, I just see, you know, there's the there's the McGill crew, or there's the the Stock crew, or there's the this crew, and they're just so, you know, they're emotionally tied to it. Uh, mm. They're to a particular narrative. To a particular narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Anywho, I think I'm just getting. I'm starting to just get a little bit tired of it. Getting tired of it. Like like it's like it it just sometimes feels never ending you know the pilates police showing up with their fucking bullshit alignment protocol and the you know the 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 body as fragile and it's just like fuck me it's 2021 we've like you know it's like change happens one death at a time you know i mean i don't know who said that back in the day but it's like like, this is not this is not a sprint this is a marathon you know we're not gonna change the hearts and minds of Stuart mcgill you know, et al, as the older generation retire, and I've actually got a lot of respect for Stuart McGill. He's, you know, and I include some of uh, his research in in my lectures that I deliver. You know, I disagree with him fairly profoundly on the spinal flexion being dangerous. And his concepts of pain. uh, Yeah, but, but, you know, he's a very smart guy and he's done some amazing research. Um, uh, But, yeah, like, we, you know, for people who had, you know, died in the wool, you know, stuck in a particular narrative, like we, we, you know, we and no one else are gonna influence them. But yeah, you know, eventually they'll grow old and retire, and the new generation will come out. And there's copious research that you know, in physiotherapy, admittedly, but basically that younger generation of better educated, more effective practitioners, more likely to give guideline-based care, more up with biopsychosocial, you know, practice. Like basically, the the less experienced you are. <laughs> You know, it seems the the more up to date you are, and that that's good, right? Because those people are the future of the industry, mm. and that's right? what I'm seeing. That's what I'm seeing in our in our students and our grads that are that are going out there, and that would have you know been quite sort of, I guess, green around the ears, so to speak, and they're out there and they're 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 changing lives with current best practice and uh, fearless movement, and it's incredible to see. Brendan, anything you want to add to, you know, to great words of wisdom to, you know, cause our, our listeners to become instantly enlightened? Uh, I don't think I've got the ability to do that. But I was just thinking as you were both speaking then, just of um, sort of one last thought. I was running a, um, a webinar a few weeks ago and um, I'd recorded myself on a reformer doing an exercise and I, and I purposefully made it look as ugly and as uncomfortable as possible. Lots of knee barriers. Oh, you did that. Dropping. Yeah. And, um, so and not so your normal graceful He asked me if I would do it. <laughs> cat-like, mm. you know, kind of execution. Exactly. No. <laughs> That's it. So I, I did it myself, Chloe. Um, and, and I and it was <laughs> looked like Bambi on a reformer. Um, 
But essentially, um, what I, when I had the participants do was like, I played that video and I said, how does that make you feel? What watching, watching me do that movement with all this knee valgus, my ankle dropping in, you know, my hips dropping, etc. How does that make you feel? Just write down a couple of adjectives of, you know, what, what you feel. And, you know, the words were things like, uh, horrified. Oh, that must hurt. I feel pain in my own knees. Things like that. Wow. When, when just watching that. Wonder if they um, got inflammation. I wonder if they got inflammation. Absolutely. <laughs> we should have, we should have strapped them up, um, <laughs> immobilized them. And, and, and then we kind of delivered the, 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 the course content and whatnot. And, and we kind of came back to this as a bit of a reflection task. And I said, it's really interesting how you felt those things and that your behavior to correct those were, because we also asked that, was, you know, to, to cue them, to push their knee out, to lift their hips, to engage their arches, things like that. That essentially for me, I was actually quite comfortable like it, it felt like a bit of a weird way to do that particular movement because I'd done it before and now I was doing it differently, but it wasn't painful. It, it wasn't, you know, any, any, any worry in my mind whatsoever that I was going to do any damage or whatever. I was like, oh yeah, this is just a different way of doing it. But based on the way that they felt, not how I felt, but based on the way they felt, they were then behaving in a way to fix me, to align with their internal model of the world, what they perceive to be correct. Now, if what they perceive to be correct isn't actually based in, in science to be more helpful, more efficient, or reduce my injury of risk, all it is, is getting them, getting me to be more like them. All right. It's, trans now, it's it, transferring their fear from them to you. Exactly. So there's this transference that occurs, I think, without us even knowing it. And it comes from a place of being helpful and trying to, you know, help people move better, etc. But what is move better? Mm. You know, what is right or wrong movement? And in fact, could we actually just be that like, is hey. A deep, that is a deep fucking question. What is move better? Because I hear, I see that splashed all over the internet all the time. Oh, move better, move better. But can someone explain to me what that is? Like, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, don't tell me that. no knee valgus without showing me a fucking systematic review that says knee valgus is a problem. Because I can show you right. a systematic review from 2021 that said it's not a problem. Pow, yeah. <laughs> pow. <laughs> um, exactly. So we're not even thinking about, you know, the words yeah. we're using, move better. Have we actually thought about what is the definition of move better? Where does that come from? What does that mean? And how do I embody that in my practice or, you know, my, my as a trainer or whatever it is, the context you're working in? Um, and I just found that like just, a, you know, reflecting back on that, that, that transference that occurs and that if we're not reflecting, if we're not asking questions of why it is I do what I do, then we're going to continue to apply transference onto people who are coming to our classes, who are coming to seek our help or whatever context it's in. And we're probably going to be a part of the problem. And, and, and this, uh, is, this is the topic of your PhD research, right? Yeah, essentially the, you know, that it's not just the words we use. Like, obviously if I say, Hey, Raf, you've got a bulging disc. 
all right? You should be really careful that you might behave in a way you probably won't, but <laughs> a normal person that doesn't know much about spines, etc., probably is going to behave in a way where they're really guarded, they're going to be really protective, they're probably not going to bend much, right? So we know that our words and our language is loaded and has the ability to influence how someone engages with their life. But more so than that, and something I don't think we talk about enough and that I'm particularly interested in in my PhD is, it's not just the words, but the implicit message that's taken away from what we do. So if I tell someone, hey, actually, you know, you're doing, you know, you, you, you know you're doing fine, your spine's strong, it's robust, you were going to heal. I can see that you're a little bit sore right now, but you're safe and let's keep you moving. And then I proceed to give them core stability exercises. All right. Even if I don't use the word core stability, but you know, even unconsciously, they may be taking a message away from that, that is conflicting with your narrative. And they're probably going to behave in a way that they might not even be aware of that suggests the same. And it might even mean that, you know, you know, let's say six months down the track, you know, that they'd recovered from their back pain. Now that back pain comes back. What do they do? Mm. Well, that individual actually gave me a very specific exercise that I had to do in a very specific dosage last time. And yeah, it got me out of my issue, what was going on. So I better go back and see them. Mm. Right. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it may lead to unnecessary healthcare utilization mm. rather than leading to someone feel like, actually, no, my body can heal by itself and it'll adapt. I just got to figure out what can I tolerate right now mm. and start to re-engage with things mm. and you know, have the healthy lifestyles so that we can teach people, that we can help people with those, those behaviors when they are faced with something difficult. But at the moment, we, I think we try and take on all the things that be, have, have that fixing mindset where we've got to fix everything in some way, shape or form. So, yeah, essentially, I'm really interested in not just the explicit message, you know, that we give someone the, the verbal part, etc., but actually the what we do, how we behave when we prescribe an exercise, when we, you know, do whatever we do in whatever context we do, because it's not here just in a, you know, a physiotherapy clinic or an exercise physiology clinic. I think this happens in personal training and Pilates context. And, um, you know, that's a really powerful place, a very powerful environment to help instill people's confidence in their bodies and having an underpinning philosophy that they do have this anti-fragile yeah. um, organism within them. Yeah. What a great place to leave it, Brendan. Chloe, you guys are both awesome. You're awesome too, uh, Ralph. <laughs> you're, you're, you're both awesome too. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I don't care what they say about you, Chloe. You're, you're all right. <laughs> Thanks, Brendan. <laughs> hey, imagine this. When you meet a new client, you know exactly what to do. You're confident because you already have a plan. A plan that's so powerful and versatile that you can use it with any client. Big clients, small clients, clients with pain in weird body parts, clients with diagnoses ending in itis, osis, or opathy, clients with neurogenic pain, whatever that is. Well, actually, neuro just means nerve and genic means produced by. So neurogenic pain is just pain that is produced by nerves. Anyway, clients with balance issues, clients with pain in 
any body part or in many body parts. All with this one weird trick. No, I'm just joking. There is no one weird trick, of course, that's going to solve everybody's problems. But if you come and study with us in our Diploma of Clinical Pilates, you will genuinely learn how to help people with all of those issues that I mentioned, plus many more. You'll learn a deep understanding of how the human body works and of modern pain science and evidence-based best practice. And you'll learn how to apply that knowledge to genuinely help people with their musculoskeletal issues. This is a one-year in-depth program. I would love to have you in the program. It's 100% online, no travel required at all. You can do it totally from your lounge room. If you're interested, I'd love to have you. Come and join us. Click on the link in the show notes, and I look forward to seeing you in class. Go on, click on the link.